Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Now today, for the main portion of the show, we are going to be talking about how doctors make in some cases the best, but in most cases, the worst patients. And we're going to hear one person's story and how that really helped change and enhance the empathy factor that you have when you take care of patients as a physician or really any medical professional, having been on the patient side of things. But before we do that, we have got the summer student research folks here. Now, every year, Straub Hospital and Hawaii Pacific Health put on this wonderful research opportunity for college students that are thinking of or even committed to going to medical school. And they get this unique opportunity to spend some time with mentors right here in the islands and work on some research projects that these mentors are doing and really help the students to figure out how it is that we can do research here in Hawaii, but also help forward medical knowledge from things that we're learning right here at home. So we're going to talk with three of these students today. We'll have some more next week as well. But these are folks who have given up their fun summer in between their college years, which for a lot of people, they wind up enjoying the last bit of freedom before they enter the real world, start working, etc. And these guys have taken the time to give up their summer to really work on doing some academic research. So first, we're going to hear from Ryan Nakamura. He is going to Woodyear College in California, majoring in chemistry. And he was working with Dr. Kevin Hara this summer, still is, out of Polymomy. And tell me what your project was about, Ryan. Sure. Um, Our project with Dr. Hara is uh, profiling the clinical factors associated with obstructive sleep apnea and uh, seeing how the demographic in Hawaii is different from, uh, you know, other demographics around the world. So let's talk about obstructive sleep apnea. What exactly is it? Sure. So when we sleep, our muscles tend to relax. Uh, We sleep, we want to relax and recover from the day's work. Um, The way that our airway is open is when our throat muscles are flexed. Um, So when we sleep, our throat muscles relax, and it causes uh, sort of a collapsation of our airway um, and and obstructs uh, air from from getting into our our airway. And so this is what we define as obstructive sleep apnea. Um, Another, you know, typical way we uh, come down with obstructive sleep apnea is when we're supine, which means laying on our backs. And, um, you know, due to gravity, our tongue will actually fall back into our airway and, you know, obstruct. So these are the folks that you hear about, you know, my spouse or my loved one or whoever it is snores, and they Mm -hmm. snore really bad, but it's not just snoring. Not all snoring is apnea, but that that occurs when people actually have moments where they stop breathing Yes, and their oxygen level goes down low enough Mm -hmm. that it actually causes them to not get as much sleep as they're supposed to. They're not very well rested. So the next day they have a lot of symptoms. What are some of those? Sure. So, so as you mentioned, um, you know, a lot of the snores um, do come down with obstructive sleep apnea. However, it's not, uh, you know, all snores have it. Um, people who don't actually snore may actually have sleep apnea. Um, so sleep apnea patients are oftentimes very sleepy during the daytime. As you said, they don't get high quality sleep because they're, you know, out of air and they, they actually uh, awaken during their sleep. Um, some of the other symptoms include morning headaches, you know, um, when our brain isn't supplied with the oxygen it needs, you know, it tends to have some negative side effects. Um, and and we, we can see some uh, choking and gasping during during their sleep, and that's just due to the, you know, lack of airway coming in. 
Sure. So if you if you or a loved one have these kinds of symptoms, choking and gasping for air in the middle of the night, waking up with a monster headache or being so tired that, you know, their drowsy driving is actually a big thing that is now becoming a concern. But particularly if you're just really sleepy, you don't get enough rest. This is dangerous. So you mentioned you're looking at some of the clinical factors sure. that are unique here to the islands. Ted, give us a little preview. What have you found so far? So, yeah, some of the variables we're collecting include some demographic data. Um, we'll also tie in some comorbidity data and some other sleep-related uh, variables. So some of the comorbidities uh, we're looking at uh, involve a lot of heart uh, conditions, so patients with congestive heart failure, atrial fibrillation, um, some pulmonary diseases such as COPD or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Um, these are all related to obstructive sleep apnea due to you know the lack of oxygenation of these tissues when we're sleeping. So we oftentimes associate you know these uh, conditions involving the heart and lungs with obstructive sleep apnea. So you're really helping to refine some of these clinical elements. And mm -hmm. how is that information going to help us here in the islands? Sure. So the whole underlying uh, part of this project is, um, as we know, healthcare is shifting um, to a more affordable care uh, system. And, and this makes the insurance companies a little more reluctant to uh, pay for certain tests and things of that nature. Um, a polysomnography is the only definitive way to diagnose obstructive sleep apnea, and the polysomnography is just a fancy word for a sleep test. And so by, you know, compiling this, you know, list of clinical factors that we can say this person is, you know, highly at risk for sleep apnea, we can more effectively tailor the polysomnography sleep test to a patient that, um, you know, really needs it rather than, you know, someone that may not. Sure. So if you figure out what the risk factors are and you've done the research to associate those factors mm -hmm. with apnea, then it may be more likely that the test could be covered and done Absolutely. because you have the research to say, hey, listen, he didn't come in saying he's snoring, but he's got all these other risk factors. Mm -hmm. And maybe nobody hears him snore. Maybe he sleeps by himself or maybe she does. So nobody could tell you, but they've got all the risk factors. They should get the study done. Yeah. And here's the research we did to prove it. Fantastic. All right. What's the best part of your entire summer working with Dr. Hara? Best part of the program so far? Best part of the program? Well, working with Dr. Hara and the, the staff at the Sleep Study uh, Center at Polymomy has been an absolute uh, blast. Um, did you do your own sleep study? I did. I had a sleep study done uh, about a week ago. Um, you know, not too bad. <laughs> All right. Well, I hope you don't have sleep apnea. Yeah, uh -huh. You're kind of young, Ryan. I don't want you to have troubles. <laughs> but uh, that's certainly some really important information because yeah. a lot of people have undiagnosed apnea, mm -hmm. and that can lead to some serious problems later on mm -hmm. if you don't take care of it. So yeah, excellent. Well, thank you so much for doing that work this summer and for helping us to figure out what are these factors that we can take a look at and hopefully be able to do some more testing in the future and target that to the right mm -hmm. population. So uh, Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thank you for coming back to the islands to do it this summer. Next, we have Tama Fukuyama. She is at Scripps College in California studying human biology. You're working with Dr. Bill Sushima, one of yes, my colleagues. I am. And you're doing some work with concussions. Mm -hmm. What is a concussion? So a concussion is a brain injury caused by a blow to the head or, I guess, violent shaking of the head or body. Okay. And so what are you studying about concussions and how is that going to help us? Okay. So we are examining neuropsychological test scores and symptom scores of high school football players in high and low contact positions. And this is actually an extension of research done by 
two previous SSRP students, Monica Arnold and Nozomi Yamashita, and they found consistent patterns of neurocognitive deficits in high-contact sport athletes, such as football players, when compared with low-contact sport athletes. Um, but my project is focusing specifically on football and the impact that position has on neurocognitive function. So, so. you're really taking a look and saying, okay, we know that concussions aren't good. Mm-hmm. And we know that there's been some other research that's been done that has attributed concussions to further problems later on in life. Right. The NFL was having a big issue with this. Mm-hmm. They've seen that it causes other neurologic issues, ALS. Um, they've also looked at it being associated with, with dementia, with all these other sorts of issues. Mm-hmm. So now you're saying not just do we think concussions, but we're going to take a look at high school students mm-hmm. and figure out which position is the riskiest. Yes. Okay. So I know nothing about football. <laughs> Admittedly, I just, I'm like a sportsophobe. I mm-hmm. really don't know anything about it. So what positions have you discovered so far are most associated? And you could tell me them and I would have no idea what they are. Mm-hmm. You could make it up. I, I go along. <laughs> so um, kind of how we define the high contact group and the low contact group is um, we based on our previous research done on head impact frequency. Um, by, by position within football. So the high contact group we defined as offensive linemen and defensive linemen, and the low contact group we defined as running backs and receivers. So the linemen, the offensive mm-hmm. or defensive, are those the guys in the front? Kind of. Yes. Kind of in the front. <laughs> okay, I'm getting head shaking like, yes, of course they are. Mm-hmm. How could you not know that? <laughs> because I know nothing about football. All right. So so you're finding that certain positions have a greater risk of concussion than others. Right. Okay. Now, this is being tested in a high school population. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that they're doing some neuropsychological testing. Mm-hmm. What is a neuropsychological test? And did you, did you ever do one? I did a demo, actually. Did you? Yes. So what's um, that? So this study utilized, it's called the IMPACT test. So it's an immediate post-concussion assessment and cognitive testing test. Um, and it's a computerized neuropsychological test instrument that measures verbal and visual memory, um, processing, speed, reaction time, um, impulse, and post-concussion symptoms. So, um, so you're doing the test after you've had a concussion. So... How the OIA does it is they want to um, administer the test to as many athletes as possible before the season to get a baseline um, score. So when they're tested immediately after they suffer a concussion and the two scores are compared to see if they do have any neurocognitive deficits. Sure. So you do Mm -hmm. the test before you ever have a head injury. Mm -hmm. And then if you have a head injury, you administer the test again, see if there's been any change. Mm -hmm. And if there has been a change, Mm -hmm. what happens then? Um, we'll have to talk to Dr. Bill Sushima. Yeah, we do. I don't know what we do after that, I'll be yeah. honest. Okay, because he's been doing this study, and I remember some of the previous students who really have looked at different facets of this question right. to try and figure out what are we going to do. So now we know, yes, concussions are associated with potentially poor school performance, some mm-hmm. other concerns that might happen mm-hmm. during the school year. There's there's issues with work. There's issues with depression. There's mm-hmm. issues with a lot of things. Yes. So now we've attributed to certain positions But we're also seeing that, hey, from that, there could be something, even more information that we can get from this. Mm -hmm. Now we're looking position specific. Yeah. So this kind of neuropsychological research is pretty unique, not found anywhere in the sports medicine literature. So there's a lot more research that we really need to do on um, brain functions of repetitive head trauma. 
Great. Well, thank you so much for telling us about it and for spending your summer working on this. Thank you. Excellent. All right. And just you found out the other day you're going to be doing a master's at my old alma mater. <laughs> I did, yes. Excellent. Congratulations. Thank That's going to be at Drexel, uh, Drexel University down there in Philadelphia. So we'll talk some a little bit later about where to stay. That's going to be in biomedical sciences. Fantastic. Have fun. You're going to come back to Hawaii because it's cold. Yeah. That's all I'm going to say. All right. Now we have Kyle Kaneko. Kyle, you're working with Dr. Kakuda. You're doing something that a year ago, for, for some listeners, they heard me put my dad in the hot seat, and I made him do his pulsed form and advanced directives live on air, much to his dismay. But you're doing some work with, with this pulsed form. Can you tell me what the form is and what it's for? Yes. So the pulsed form actually stands for the Physician's Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment, and it's kind of... um. Another step of a kind of like the advanced directive, and it was first created in Oregon by a medical ethicist that found that patients patients who were in end of life stages, their wishes weren't being honored, whether it be uh, tube feeding interventions, medical inter- interventions that they don't really want, and they saw that there was this problem, so they came up with this post form to try to create a way for patients to have their wishes followed. So the difference between the post form and an advanced directive is that it's actually a medical order and it has both the patient signature and an actual physician's signature. And it actually um, has a, a bunch of sections in it which can help um, ensure a patient's um, end-of-life interventions are met, whether it be like IV administration, use of antibiotics, uh, CPR, uh, which is car- cardiopulmonary resuscitation. All these things can be uh, met with this post form. So what we were finding out, basically, Oregon discovered that people would write down advanced directives and we just, you know, doctors wouldn't follow them. Oops. So what's the point of writing them down if we don't actually follow their instructions? So it sounds like now this is a form that's used, you mentioned, in 19 states. So it's not used in every state. But the way that I explain this to patients is that an advanced directive tells us what to do if you have a terminal and life-threatening condition. And that's great information. But if you call 911 and an ambulance comes to your front door, they're not going to be able to know. I mean, I guess there are some situations where they could know. But for the most part, they're not going to know if you have a terminal or life-threatening condition. They're going to want to know, do you want to be hospitalized? Should we try and bring you back or not? And some people have really strong thoughts about that. I have some patients who are in their 80s or their 90s, and they don't want to be put through those types of procedures. So that form has been particularly helpful for people who are in a situation where EMS or emergency medical services are called. What color does Hawaii have for the form and where should people put it? So Hawaii's form is actually a bright green color. And naturally, um, ambulance, the people in ambulance, whether it be EMTs, they're trained naturally to look mainly at refrigerators. But you want to keep it in a place that's really easily recognized. That way, when they knock down the door, they're trained to scan the room. So you want to keep it in an area that's probably around head level, uh, someplace that's really noticeable. The refrigerator probably works best. So should everybody have one or only people who are kind of ill and or might be needing emergency care have one? So it's recommended that people that are near the end of stage of life or like have, they know that they have an acute onus to fill one out. 
But it's actually better if you're an adult and you actually start thinking about it. Mm Because the post-forum doesn't just specify your end-of-life interventions. It actually gets you thinking about filling out advanced directives as well, which is really important because you never know when these situations could arise. That's very true. So I I usually tell folks, advanced directives are any age at any point. And a pulsed form, maybe if you have a hint that something's going on or as you're getting older, a lot of our... A lot of our nursing facilities and even assisted living facilities require that patients who are going to be admitted actually have this form done so that even their staff and personnel know what this particular individual wants. So in your opinion, do you think that if we make post forms, this physician order for life-sustaining treatment and advanced directives more commonly utilized, will we actually increase the rates of physicians actually following people's desired wishes for their care? So from what uh, my research has shown, uh, the postform is actually followed and uh, physicians and medical professionals actually follow it. I think it's close to 95 to 98 percent. So we're getting this, better. Yeah. So this form isn't just some form that you fill out. Um, it's just, a lot of the medical staff here at Hawaii Pacific Health is doing a really good job at following the patient's wishes. Fantastic. And one of the things for folks to know is that if you have those forms at home, do make sure you bring a copy to your doctor's office or your medical provider's office because they can actually scan them into the electronic medical record. And our electronic medical record can be accessed by physicians at Queens on a read-only basis and vice versa, and I think also Kaiser. So when people say, well, I have a copy at home, do I need to bring one to my doctor or my provider? Yes, you do. They will give it back to you. We can scan it in and then your medical record, usually these days electronic, will be completed and this will just help to do so. So thank you, Kyle, for working hard on this. It's a hard topic. It's hard for people to bring up this discussion with family members, but I'm really glad that you've been able to help people realize with the research you're doing how important it is that we respect wishes that they have and also give us some feedback as clinicians. Are we doing a good job following it? Because it's always important to know if we're making sure that we're doing it correctly. So thanks for giving up your summer. And uh, you're studying where again? Uh, I just graduated from University of Oregon. Fantastic. And what's your plan next? Um, I just recently just applied to medical school. Fantastic. Good for you. Yeah, thank you. Please come back here because we could always use some wonderful doctors. And it sounds like you guys all have fabulously bright futures ahead of you. Thanks for giving up your summer. That's Ryan Nakamura, Tama Fukuyama, and Kyle Kaneko. They're all working hard this summer to bring research that is important to people right here in Hawaii. And they're doing it here at home with local doctors. And we'll help to share that information. You've got a big presentation coming up next week in front of a room of several hundred, lots of docs. Don't be nervous. We're nice, I swear. And uh, I appreciate you guys coming in on your Monday and sharing this excellent update research to us, updating research for for all of us here in Hawaii. All right. When we come back, we are going to be talking with the other Dr. Kozak. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll talk with Dr. Bill Kozak and hear about his story when he went from being a doctor to a patient and what's it like to go through that whole process and then be a doctor again and take hopefully even more empathetic care of his patients than I know he already does. As always, our show is your show. If you have questions, you can always join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. We're going to talk about what's it like to be a medical professional and be a patient. If that's happened to you, you give us a holler and share your story as well. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. 
Chinese economy has been changing, as you know, and with all that change came us. It's kind of sad. There are so many foreigners actually right now live there. I'm Kai Rizdal. Life on the street of eternal happiness. We'll have that, the day's numbers from Wall Street, and the rest of the business news next time on Marketplace. This evening at 6, following The Body Show. Please join me, my band, and the powerhouse horns in the Atherton studio on Saturday, August 13th, when we explore the spectrum of blues in American music. Make your reservations for this blues retrospective at 955-8821 during business hours or at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership Wealth Management. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii, Ulupono Initiative, and Hawaii Pacific University. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio. We just heard some great information from some of the summer students that are completing their college years, going on to medical school or master's degrees, about some research going on right here in the islands. It's always nice to know that we're doing some top-quality research that's going to help all of us who live here. And, in fact, there's... There's a lot of medical professionals that are out here in the islands. And, you know, we all know that, well, actually, it's kind of ironic. We all deny that doctors are the worst patients, but I'd like to say we probably are. And today we're going to hear a story of actually a very close to my heart story of my brother who went to medical school, dare I say, after I did even though he's older, because I had to do that. And we're going to be talking about what it's like to go from being a doctor to a patient and going back to your practice. What is that experience like? What did he learn through the whole process? And how did he find out that he was having troubles? So not only do we have my brother, uh, Dr. Bill Kozak here, but we also have his wife, Evelyn Nieves Kozak. She is a nurse, and she was actually integral in him discovering that he had this diagnosis. So while he's here on vacation, I said, this would be great. We can share your story with others because it may just help someone else along the way. If you or a loved one has ever been in a situation where you've discovered a medical problem or you are the medical professional who helped diagnose it in your family, you can always join us and share your story as well. We are here live in the studio at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Dr. Bill, Evelyn, welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. Well, let's talk first with you, Bill, because, you know, I know a bit about this story, but I'm curious, you you were at your office doing your regular activities and you started to notice that when you were not in the office, when you were home, when you were doing other things, you you weren't feeling as energetic as you used to be. You know, I mean, we all get older and we think, oh, I used to be able to do this in my 20s and now I'm in my 40s and maybe that's why I can't. Tell me a little bit about some of the first symptoms that maybe retrospectively you realized you had. Well, I started getting symptoms of generalized tiredness, which you can relate to absolutely anything. So I started to feel fatigue, decrease uh, endurance, but nothing specific that tipped me off to anything significant being wrong. So we're just the types of things that you could attribute to even having a simple cold. 
So you were just not feeling as energetic. You know, you drive a long distance to work, you work all day, you come home, you know, you get tired, all those sorts of things happen. So when you started to feel just tired and and have no endurance, you mentioned, because you've always been the athletic one in the family. You cringed when I said, I know nothing about football, which is definitely true. And so, you know, you've been the athlete, so you started not being able to do as much. That was one of your first signs or symptoms. Evelyn, what did you notice? Because you're a nurse, you're about to be a nurse practitioner, and you've got the clinical experience to be able to notice when something is going well and also when something isn't going well. Did you happen to pick up on some of the same things? Um, yeah, I did. I noticed him just being more fatigued, more out of breath than normal. Um, being very active, we had we used to go on bike rides, and I remember one day in particular, we had gone up this hill that normally he can, you know, really race me three or four times, and I'm just struggling trying to get up the hill. I know that feeling. Yeah, and this time I was up the hill, and I'm looking at him, and he was completely pale, completely out of breath, and I'm like, this is not... Right. And at this point, we had no diagnosis, no nothing. And yeah, we're just, holding that part back about what the diagnosis is. Yeah. We're keeping people in suspense. So so there you are, you're biking, and he usually laps you several times oh, yeah. up the hill, and you're like, hello, I'm beating you, something is wrong. Yes, for sure. And um, one other instance um, prior to that one, we were just in an amusement park, and I just gave him a hug, and I audibly um, heard an abnormality. Um, and I was just like, are you, you know, you heard a murmur. Correct. A I heart heard murmur. a very, very loud heart murmur. And you're thinking, hello, I don't need a stethoscope. This isn't good. Right. And I, you know, he says, oh, no, I've had this murmur all my life. And I was like, okay, but I don't ever remember it being this loud. Yeah. And it's funny because I don't remember you ever having had a murmur. But I mean, hey, you know, it's not like I'm listening to you with my stethoscope for fun. So, okay, so you notice that the murmur seemed to be getting louder and was more of a problem. And then the day after this bike ride, what happened, Bill, when you were in your office? Well, I went to the office like any other day. I'm just doing my normal work. And um, as I'm sitting there, I felt myself bounce into an abnormal heart rhythm. So there's a rhythm called atrial fibrillation. Some patients out there may know about it. The top of the heart starts beating really quickly, and the bottom is trying to keep up, but it's uneven. And I felt it. I knew it wasn't normal. I had no idea what popped me into it, but I knew something was unusual. And actually, I had my staff put a EKG machine on me quickly, and uh, and we were able to see it. It was obvious at that point. And then it self-resolved after about a half hour. So there you are in your office. you got an EKG machine in the back. If anybody ever says, do you ever try that on yourself? Yes, in fact, sometimes we do. And there you were doing, having your staff help you do your own EKG. And you knew you had this, this, you had the sensation of this funny heartbeat. And there you were seeing it right in front of you. So what did you do after that? Well, I gave myself the same medicine I would have given to a patient and finished seeing the rest of the people for the day. And obviously there's some point where you say to yourself, well, that's unusual. I'm an otherwise healthy athletic guy. Why am I going into this funny heart rhythm? There are some risk factors for it. Sometimes people have too much caffeine. Some people have thyroid issues. Some people have a variety of different ailments that could can, that could contribute to them going into this funny heart rhythm. And sometimes they go into it because there's something else structurally going on with their heart. So after you had your first episode, now, presumably you had known you had this murmur and you heard from Evelyn, hey, it's getting louder. 
So what was your next step? Because this is sort of the curious part. You know, doctors, are we really the worst patients? Evelyn and I joke about doctor denial. And so, you know, you know enough to know this is a problem. What did you do after that? Well, I called a colleague who agreed to see me as a patient a few days later. So that part was easy for me, at least having good access. And somebody put me in the office. I brought the EKG. They did another one. The, the, the one that they did the second time was in a normal rhythm. But the colleague can obviously see the EKG as well. So they saw that I had popped in and out of fibrillation. Then we had to make a diagnosis of why. So they ordered a couple of tests. And in that situation, they were figuring out, hey, you know what, is it because of caffeine or thyroid or stress or what's going on? It's not normal for people to have their heart go in and out of this rhythm. There's generally, a, it's, it's the heart's telling us something. It's telling us something is wrong, pay attention. And when your colleague did an evaluation for you, said, hey, there's something wrong, let's, let's try and figure it out. At some point, you did a stress test, you still did pretty good on it. Well, the stress test overall was okay, but I bounced into a bad rhythm and my blood pressure dropped, and then I snapped right back out of it. So they, again, knew something was wrong, but we didn't know for sure at what point, and they ordered blood work as well. So it was it was getting to the point where it was obvious that we're missing something, and you know, I had to sit back, actually, and let somebody else figure out what the something was because the more you decide to diagnose yourself, the deeper a hole you often dig for yourself, so... Yeah, well, I think anybody listening who's ever been a nurse or a doctor or any type of medical professional can absolutely agree with that. Now, Evelyn, you were around at this time and you're hearing about this situation and you're probably pretty happy that, you know, he's going to be taken care of, going to see a colleague. What were your thoughts around then? Because here you go. You've got this guy. You've been seeing him for a while. And, you know, he never used to have this big, loud murmur. Now he does. He's going into this funny heart rhythm. What were your thoughts at the time? Well, just trying to again wonder or figure out what was going on. There was just an in you know an impetus to try to get some kind of diagnosis to figure out you know is this something that is really serious or is this something that can be just you know fixed with a pill or some kind of, of medication. So um, we always hope that we can just fix it with something simple. And in some cases, fibrillation can be fixed with something simple. But then then you had the echocardiogram, and I remember you calling me, telling me afterwards, and wow, that was interesting. So tell us a little bit about what the diagnosis is that you got and explain it a little bit because it's it's not that common. And yet when we hear about some athletes that, you know, they're, they're young and they suddenly have uh, dropped dead on the court of playing basketball or something, this is the condition that they actually are trying to monitor for in young kids. But because it's not that common, it's really hard to find. So tell us about what the echo showed and, and what the diagnosis is. Well, they did the echocardiogram and ultrasound of the heart, and it was obvious to even the technician before before the doctor even saw the echo. And in fact, the technician pointed it out to me and said, hold on for a second, and went and got the doctor from outside the room to look at it. You never know. Like if you're in the middle of a test and somebody says, hold on real quick, I've got to get somebody else in the middle of that evaluation, you can start to panic because generally that's not a good thing. So, well, I could see from the from the ultrasound as well as the technician and the doctor that the middle of the heart was way too thick and the blood was having to take a pretty crazy path to get in and out of there instead of straight in and straight out. 
So, so the, let's talk about the four chambers of the heart briefly, because, you know, we talk about the middle and you and I and Evelyn may know exactly what this means and other folks may not. So if we were to think about the heart as having, you know, four chambers, so make a little square and make it look like almost a window pane, you've got the right side and you've got the left side. And there is supposed to be, and there is kind of this wall that separates the right and the left. So you've got the right upstairs, the right downstairs, left upstairs and left downstairs. Now, the right side of your heart pumps blood to your lungs. That's how your blood gets oxygenated, and then it comes back to the left side of your heart. From the left side, it gets pumped through the rest of the body. So that bottom part of the heart is what pumps blood to your brain, to the rest of your your kidneys, your heart, everywhere else in the body. It pumps this rich in oxygen blood throughout the rest of your body. And it's probably one of the most important chambers of the heart. So when it squeezes, the the top part of the heart and the bottom part are supposed to be sealed. So the bottom part squeezes blood out and the top part is closed off and then it opens up, blood comes down and you start the process all over again, thus the heartbeat. So you're describing having a problem with that like wall in the middle between the right part of your heart and the left part, kind of in the downstairs, the bottom part of it. But that wasn't the only thing that you had a problem with. Well, the wall got so big that it actually was ruining the flow pattern from the valve separating the top and bottom. So it was causing two different problems. And the murmur was coming from leakage of blood backwards through the valve. So the top part, which is supposed to be sealed on the left side of your heart from the top floor and the bottom floor, wasn't able to seal. No, the top part was getting backflow from the bottom. So when the top part was supposed to be to be closed and having done its job, it was getting half the blood that it just pumped into the bottom pumped right back up into the top. And that was because it couldn't get out through the bottom because you had this, what we call an obstruction. So I tell people to think about it. Like if you think of the thickness of the walls of your house, they have a certain thickness from the inside to the outside. Now think of a castle. So a castle is going to have these thick, thick stone walls. So the outside might seem like it's the same size as a regular house, but because the walls are so thick, the inside is going to be smaller. So those thick walls is what we're talking about. These really thick muscular walls that actually are are not letting the blood get out at all. So your heart's working extremely hard to try and pump blood out. And that was what was causing some of those symptoms you had. That was what was blocking a lot of the flow of a lot of the blood. I was only getting a small fraction of what I was supposed to get. So it made sense after after seeing that on the test result for why I felt so tired. I was only getting a fraction of the blood flow I was used to to keep the muscles moving. And it was worse when you were active. Well, when you when you do more activity, you need more blood flow to the muscles. So when they needed more, they were getting less. It obviously made the problem that much worse during those times. And when I would sit down and rest, it would take longer to recover because – the muscles from whatever activity I was doing were running low for so long in oxygen. It took a good while for them to, to refresh even after I sat down for, for a couple minutes. So you'd be in a situation where here's your body trying to actually help you exercise like you've always done because you've always been the athlete in the family. So you're doing this kind of activity and, you know, normally muscles need oxygen in order to help propel you up a hill if you're biking or if you're running or jogging. You need that oxygen to help your muscles function. So in your case, even though your heart was trying to pump, the muscles were getting less blood and therefore less oxygen. And as a result, your heart's working super hard. When you think back to this condition, any warning signs prior to you feeling just tired, maybe about six months before, that might have occurred to you that you had this serious heart problem? 
Well, since hindsight's twenty twenty, I can look back and think of lots of different warning signs. Um, one of them in particular, about six months before, I had an episode where I got really confused for a few seconds and was stumbling on words, and that was likely low oxygen to the brain, and it self-resolved after a couple of minutes. But at the moment it happened, I had just finished eating some strange meal of a bunch of shrimp that I don't normally eat, and I thought I may just have had a reaction to something they made with the shrimp because it felt like my tongue was swollen. Although when I looked in the mirror, there was no swelling on the tongue. So so I can look back and I can pinpoint lots of different symptoms. But at the time, you can easily come up with a simple excuse in the back of your mind for why everything's fine. And it, as soon as your body goes back to normal and you feel like your normal self, you have all the reason in the world, or so it seems, to believe that everything's fine and whatever happened is over and we'll just go on with life as usual. So what do you think was causing that weird sensation of your tongue and that uh, difficulty with words? So, well, the condition that I had can lead to some blood clots. So a small blood clot could have actually blocked a blood vessel on the way to the brain. And that actually, if it doesn't clear fast enough, can become a stroke. So I may have actually had a small clot that cleared, which is what people would call a TIA or a mini stroke if you if you go to the doctor's office. And basically, that's like a stroke of luck in the sense that the blood clot actually gets broken up and cleared out of that blood vessel before the blockage lasts long enough to deprive the brain for oxygen long enough to cause damage. So in this situation, you look back and go, wow, I might have had this TIA before because that's one of the consequences of this fibrillation type of a problem or even just having all this turbulent blood flow in your heart, a little clot can break off and go to the brain. And if it gets dissolved, your symptoms resolve. And if it doesn't, then the symptoms generally stay. Well, let's talk about the condition because there's a couple of names for it. Uh, idiopathic hypertrophic subaortic sclerosis. Okay, like that's not a mouthful, called IHSS. Or they also call it HOCM, H-O-C-M, hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. Uh, tell us a little bit more about it. This is a congenital thing, yeah? Yeah, actually, as we look back in hindsight, and as I talked to the cardiologist about it, our grandmother died in her early 50s. She had had three heart attacks at that point. Yeah, it was before and, I was born, yeah. And basically... They figure she had this condition. It's genetic. She passed it down through our family. You can have one or, or two of the genes that relate to the condition. So if you have one bad gene, you may be the, what we call a carrier. If you have two bad genes, you can be affected. And it's likely that she passed down this gene. I inherited it. And the strange part about the condition is it develops later in life. And it's somewhat variable on when you'll get symptoms. So as you mentioned earlier, sometimes teenagers start to develop this and they may have been a great athlete on their sports team and perform to a much higher level. And then suddenly one day when they're just not feeling like their normal selves drop over on the court in a bad heart rhythm and sometimes don't recover. So the thickness in the heart blocks a lot of the ability of the left ventricle, the left chamber on the bottom to fill up with blood and then pump blood. It would seem like a thicker muscle should be stronger, but in fact, the thickness weakens the heart so much that it can't pump out nearly as much blood as normal. So the thicker muscle in the heart is a dangerous problem. And when they did my my follow-up uh, uh, echocardiogram or ultrasound after a stress test, they told me that the pressure inside the heart trying to pump the blood out was 165 points higher than the blood pressure they were measuring at my arm. So they told me that the pressure through the valve that's supposed to be about three the pressure change when you pump the blood through the valve 
was actually 165. And so it's amazing that you didn't have some serious consequence and that it was actually discovered, luckily, in time. All right. Well, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio live with Dr. William or Bill Kozak. He's a physician practicing in uh, the Pittsburgh area of Pennsylvania and also my older brother. And we're also here with his wife, Evelyn Nieves Kozak. And she is going to when we come back, we're going to talk some more with her about what is it like when you have a doctor who gets diagnosed with a serious heart problem and you retrospectively can kind of look back and say, hey, these are the symptoms. She caught the murmur and said something's going on. And what was that journey like to go from you've got this serious diagnosis to here's how we're going to fix it? And how is that going to affect pretty much the rest of your life, really? So we'll be back in just a moment. But again, our story is your story. So if you have one of somebody who has had a remarkable tale of finding something out that they didn't expect, or if you're the medical professional in your family and you discovered something that nobody else had talked about or found out in your family, you can always join us and share your story. Our purpose in doing so is that it might also help somebody else along the way. And that that is available at 941-3689, toll free from the, from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Try, when crafting my new identity, to imagine what the first letter might look like emblazoned on a leotard. Rebranding a superhero. This week on Selected Shorts from PRI, Public Radio International. Tuesday at 5 p.m. following Travel with Rick Steves. Take one multi-Hoku award-winning artist, that's Kuana Torres Kahele, two back-to-back concerts of his music for the Hawaiian Islands, two Merry Monarch-winning Hula Halau, discount tickets for groups of six or more. This all adds up to a celebration of Hawaii you won't want to miss. For more about this upcoming fundraiser for your public radio station, go to hawaiipublicradio.org events. I'm Derek Malama of Kanikapila Sunday, and I'll see you there. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio, and we've got a little bit of a family show today. I have Dr. Bill Kozak, my older brother, along with his wife, a nurse, Evelyn Nieves Kozak, and we're talking about what is it like when, as a doctor, you get diagnosed with a serious medical condition. And Evelyn, you noticed it first. You said, hey, that's a heart murmur, and I don't even need a stethoscope to hear it. That's kind of abnormal. So what is it like? I mean, here you are, and you find out that someone that you love and care about is diagnosed with this. It's kind of rare. I mean, it's an unusual, maybe about, what is it, like one in a thousand people can be born with this condition. And it affects people differently. It's a genetic sort of inherited issue from your family. And some people have a major problem with it. Some people don't. But when you hear about some of those athletes that die of sudden arrhythmias, they're on the, they're on the court, they're playing basketball, they're doing stuff. This is usually the condition they have. And they describe it as a type of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or, or too much muscle in the heart that's overgrown. And part of the reason it's an issue is because 
the conduction or the electricity to your heart goes through those layers of muscle. And so if the muscle's too thick, the electricity doesn't go through, the heart doesn't pump, all sorts of things happen. So Evelyn, you heard this murmur first and you knew something was up. What was it like when you heard that this was the condition that Bill had? Well, at that point, it was just, all right, it's almost going into gear to start the research. Like, what are we going to do about this now? And um, luckily, I uh, um, work at a university, and so I was able to get on to um, different databases to try to pull as much research and information that I could on this um, disease process. And, and you know, along with, you know, you, we were trying to figure out kind of where was the best place to kind of treat this thing. So it was just scary at the same time because knowing that any little thing could could potentially be fatal at this point without um, having treatment. And so, you know, here we are in this situation where people always wonder, hey, do doctors also consult the Internet for medical information or do nurses look there as well? Yes, we do. But there are some portals. There are some websites and or some specific things that might be available in a in a, in a medical capacity that can help you to sort of vet the information and know where it comes from, know what the best sort of treatment would be. There's sort of a whole different It's a whole different area where doctors and nurses can look for medical information that often is not necessarily something as accessible to the public because a lot of the language that's used is very scientific. Sometimes I even have a hard time reading some of the stuff. So so it's kind of restricted for certain access. But so here you are. You did a lot of research. You found out what what the situation was. And the both of you started planning doing some of the initial evaluation and treatment because this let's talk about the treatment for this condition, Bill. It's not just take a pill if caught as late as you were caught. I mean, on the one hand, the rest of the family had to get tested to see if we had the condition as well. And for those that did, um, it, it reassured us that, yeah, we are all related. You know, we were always wondering about you, but I guess, you know, we can't deny you anymore. But, uh, you know, we found out that for those people who actually were positive, they got to take medicine because they weren't symptomatic and they didn't have it as bad yet. And so you were sort of unfortunately put in the position where, thanks to you, some other folks found out and they're not going to hopefully suffer the same consequences with the treatment because, they found out early enough. So let's talk about what is the treatment for this condition, this super thickened heart muscle. Well, when it reaches a certain point, which it often does spontaneously at an unpredictable age, basically the only thing you can do is open heart surgery. So I had open heart surgery. So the process of them going in and fixing it was pretty rough, but the results were obviously well worth it. I feel like a whole different person and I have no regrets at all for going. I thank you both my wife and my sister for being supportive and helping me to get through it. And I have to tell you, the idea that a lot of people put forth of, I just don't want to know if I have something, I'd rather just let it go and and then let go, is a terrible idea. Because the myth is that something could just snap me out like a light bulb. The more likely reality is if you wait on something long enough, bad things can happen that are not fatal and you can suffer consequences for a long period of time. So it was terrible to be diagnosed with this, but I was really pleased and very lucky to be able to get great treatment. And I feel like a different person. So so you basically went to, and we can talk about where. So you went to Cleveland Clinic. There were, there were This particular surgery requires the expertise of someone who does it a lot because it's not a common procedure. 
and it's not something done on a routine basis for most cardiothoracic or open heart surgeons, you want to make sure you go somewhere where people do this regularly. And often those are major medical centers. And given the fact that you live in the Pittsburgh area, Cleveland Clinic was very close to you. They had an excellent heart center where they did this surgery hundreds of times a year, as opposed to another place that might do one or two every couple of years. So you went where they had the expertise and the accessibility, but also they do it a lot. So one of the things you looked for in a medical center was one that does the procedure frequently and often. And a lot of times patients may feel a little reluctant to ask their doctor, how often do you do this procedure? But that was one of the criteria that you used to pick a place to have surgery. It was. And you know what? I was very very lucky to have colleagues that were very forthright with me. The local cardiothoracic surgeon said, I could take care of you two days from now, but I I do this once in a year, maybe on an odd year. So you may want to consider going somewhere that actually does this more often. So they were, they were very appropriately humble. And for listeners out there, if you go to your practitioner, don't, don't hesitate for a second to ask them for another opinion, to have someone evaluate you if you have to have something done, because there are good people out there that will be honest with you and forthright and, and explain the circumstances. And you can gauge for yourself when someone is giving you good information and comfortable with what they're telling you and basically pointing you in a direction to say, I think this is the most appropriate course of action for this condition. There may be other approaches, but this would be the, the pluses and minuses of doing things one way versus another. Sure, because there was another potential had your had your heart not been in such a uh, bad condition, advanced condition of this particular diagnosis, there was another procedure that could have been done, but it wouldn't necessarily have had the same success rate given the circumstances of you having this diagnosis sort of later in the course of the illness. And so, you know, you went where the numbers go. And I agree with you. A lot of times here, particularly in Hawaii, people are wondering, are they getting the most accurate up-to-date information and treatment? And in a lot of cases, they are. And then there are certain special circumstances where if you have a really rare diagnosis, maybe you do need to seek other opinions. Maybe they are even outside of the islands, but never hesitate to ask. I can't think of any medical professional that I know of personally here in Hawaii They would be upset if somebody said, hey, you know what, I'd like to get another opinion. I just want to make sure. We encourage that. And honestly, doctors don't feel in any way sort of challenged by that. We encourage it for good reason. So you had this procedure done at Cleveland Clinic, and you recovered pretty remarkably. I remember, you know, I went there, and you did really fabulous. When did you start to feel back to what you figured was your baseline. I mean, a lot of people want to know, you know, they have open heart surgery for a variety of different conditions. When did you start to feel like you had gotten back to where you should be? How long did it take? After a couple of weeks, I reached about the point where I feel now. I never reached the baseline of what I had before when I was younger, but the important issue is that I I actually was able to reach a, a point where I can live a really good quality of life and that's obviously what's most important when you have a family, when you have when you have everything to live for. It's all about quality of life. So I don't need to ride a bike as fast as I used to. There's no there's no real prize in life for who's the fastest as opposed to who has the best quality of life. I reached a point after about two weeks where quality of life was returning to about where it is now. And so you were able to recover. It actually went fairly well. And how has that changed when you see, because you actually have a couple of patients that you take care of who have the same condition. So, you know, that's got to 
be something that you can really bring to the table when you talk with them. Hey, hey, I had that. I know all about it. And I think you mentioned one of them has had surgery, one of them hasn't. How how did this whole experience being the patient and being the person who we often talk about people feeling somewhat powerless because they're in the hospital and you don't get to keep your own schedule and routine and all sorts of things. How did that change your outlook on taking care of patients, particularly those with the same condition once you went back to work? Well, it just helps you understand the frustration patients go through because when I called the specialty center, this is one of their bread and butter procedures, especially for the particular physician that I saw. It still took us at least a good month and a half to get in, and we had to do planning for that, and that was actually uh, a bit of a stroke of luck that we were able to get surgery on the date that I did. He happened to have an opening that he said uh, was in a shorter period of time than most people get. So it helps you to understand the frustration uh, that the patient can express to basically say, so you mean I need to have something done, and... Now you're going to do wait. it. Right. Yeah, you're going to do it within a month. I, I'd like to have this done tomorrow. So you can easily understand how it can grate on a lot of people's nerves. For instance, if they have an abnormal test, if a, if a woman has an unusual finding on a mammogram, or if someone has some other test result that needs a follow up, as the patient, it's got to be very difficult for them to to go through the waiting period, knowing that you have nothing to do but wait for your follow up result and it gives you some new perspective on that. Sure. I mean, I think there's a new motto going forth in medicine is trying to make trying to make it such that patients don't have to wait because, you know, no matter who you are, if you have this abnormal mammogram or abnormal test result, everybody always thinks the worst possible scenario could happen to them and they fear it. And if there's some way that we can alleviate that fear, it's sort of our job as medical professionals to do so. Evelyn, how did this change your perspective having watched your husband go through this procedure and come out of it. And and you knew from way back when you first heard this murmur out of all places, an amusement park, which is not the quietest place in the, in the world. How did it change how you take a look at patients who come in and who have these same fears? I think sometimes, and I'll be honest, I think sometimes the nursing profession does a better job at really helping to understand and empathize with patients. Did it affect your practice at all? Well, for me, for sure. I mean, being a a teacher, you know, students are, they have everything in the, you know, when we're going through stuff, they all have everything that we're teaching them, you know. But I remember a particular one student um, coming to me um, after, because after, you know, Bill having this surgery, it was almost like I, I understood this whole section so much better to be able to teach that heart section when it came to myopathies, because we had done so much um You did your own research, yeah. sure. You kind of had to. Yeah, and I, I had a student come up to me and just, you know, just saying, you know, Mrs. Kozak, I'm, I'm fainting a lot and I'm having these symptoms and, you know, I don't know what's going on. And she explained a lot of the stuff that Bill had been going through and family members had had, you know, the things. So immediately my heart dropped for her and I was just like, you really need to go get checked like immediately right now. So, you know, in that sense, it's just being uh, more aware just being more aware of what's, you know, symptoms may may be, as Bill was saying, you know, we ignore them, but they may be serious. And taking care of it sooner. Absolutely. Can, Going, uh, can mm-hmm. make a huge difference. I mean, I often wonder, had for some reason you had this diagnosed, Bill, when you were younger, for whatever reason, however it could have been diagnosed, could you have been spared an open heart surgery by 
taking medication or doing other procedures prior to that? And the answer is, yeah, but without any symptoms or without the ability to know that there's something going on, this was just the position, you know, these were the cards you were dealt, but kind of luckily so, because for the other family members who have the same genetic uh, congenital condition, they now have the opportunity to act differently for themselves because you had to go through this whole entire process. When you see patients in your office now who say, I never want to go through open heart surgery, I don't think I could do it, having been there and done that, does that help you to sort of encourage them in a way and explain, hey, I know what you're talking about, this is what happened with me, and help them walk down that road a little bit easier? It does. Obviously, there's a fear factor when you have any surgery. If you're going to have a mole removed and they give you anesthesia, everyone's seen the show on TV where someone has a reaction to anesthesia and terrible things can happen. The chances are extremely small, and, and in the medical community, we, we don't even think about that often. And I guess it reminds you to remind the patient about the real level of risk and the fact that things can be treatable. So even if you do have a reaction to your anesthesia, there's a treatment for that. It just reminds you to remind people that even though there are very small instances of problems that happen to people, the chances are small and the treatment of the condition that you're, that you're treating has a much higher risk if you do nothing than the small risk of the treatment itself. So your risk is never zero, but it's important to understand that the risk of the condition, if it outstrips the risk of the treatment, is worth getting treatment for. So if you have a condition like a heart problem and you're told, hey, you might have to have procedure done, whether it be angioplasty, stents, angiograms, or even open heart surgery, if you don't do it, the consequences could be deadly. And the chances of that going bad are probably much higher than the small risk of doing whatever procedure might be necessary to treat it. I think retrospectively looking at some of the things you described, it sort of helps you to reinterpret your symptoms and know that you were given some warning signs. All of us need to pay really careful attention to what our bodies are telling us. And when in doubt, check it out. Never hesitate to go see your doctor if you don't have one. Time to get one. Get a primary care provider and make sure that you see them when you're healthy or if you have any concerns so that as you get older, you have that established relationship. You can call them up. You can see them. You have a problem. See the same doctor if possible on a regular basis so that way they know you. I mean, Evelyn, you knew Bill, and you didn't remember him having a murmur from a while back. And all of a sudden he says, I've always had a murmur. And you're like, really? Mm -hmm. That loud? Don't think so. You better get that checked out. That was one of the first thing that came to mind for you. Yeah, for sure. And then the bike ride, of course, because he always, you know... He laps me on a bike, but that's yeah. not easy. That's, that's <laughs> not that hard, I'll tell you. That, yeah. That's an easy task. The nice thing is just going, you know, having all of this done, um, he, you know, he's still able to bike ride now and he's still able to do activity, which is great. And that was one of the things I think we both were concerned with at, at one point in time. Like, will you be able to go back and do these things now after open heart surgery? And he was. And we still are, you know, able to be very active even after open heart surgery, which is really important. Absolutely. All right. Well, any last words, Bill? Yeah, if there's anything I would say, it's just don't be afraid to get a general checkup because even if you have no symptoms for anything, what you don't know can hurt you. And honestly, most of the conditions that your practitioner can pick up on are going to be easily treatable, especially if you catch it early. So even if you have no symptoms, go get checked out, as corny as it sounds. But when you get checked out, if something is brewing and they catch it early, it can make a world of difference. 
All right. Heard from the the mouth of my brother, the doctor. I want to thank both of you for taking time away from your vacation and being on today. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Our engineer is David Chong, executive producer Beth Ann Kozlovich. We'll see you right here next week on The Body Show.